0: Welcome everyone to Wells Preachers Podcast. Today we're discussing Ash Wednesday Year C, brand new worship series called Crushed, where we're looking at various things that can crush us, guilt, regret, all that stuff, and how Jesus crushes all those things for us. Our theme for this particular day, Ash Wednesday, is that self-righteousness is crushed by repentance we're remembering that because death is going to reduce us to ashes one day we need our hearts to be reduced to ashes in repentance right now our participants are pastor jonathan bauer of good news lutheran in mount horeb wisconsin pastor joel rousseau of faith lutheran in tallahassee florida and professor tom cuck from wisconsin lutheran seminary i'm john Hyden, coordinator of wells congregational services John Bauer, I want to start with you. You actually served as the editor for the commentary on the propers for Year C, so if people don't like these sermon series, they can direct their complaints to you. When guys read read through it, I'm guessing they were maybe a little surprised that Ash Wednesday got pulled into a worship series that ties with the Sundays of Lent, rather than, you know, normally a lot of guys think that Ash Wednesday goes with the midweek services. Why don't you share your rationale for that?
1: Yeah, so so Ash Wednesday, um, really going back, I, I don't have the uh, all the history on the, the tip of my tongue here, but going back for centuries has been an actual date on on the the Christian calendar um, in a day where where there are services each year. I think the the custom of having services on the on all six Wednesdays in Lent is just that it's a, it's a custom that a lot of churches do, but Ash Wednesday is actually a, an official um, day on the church's calendar. The other thing is that the, the focus is significantly different from those other five Wednesdays if a church does in fact have uh, Wednesday services during Lent. So I think in most churches, people are, are probably used to doing one of two things on those Wednesdays. One would be uh, using it as an, as an opportunity to review the passion history And to preach on the passion history, which is certainly a a worthy goal. Um, As as preachers and a lot of people probably know, uh, the passion history itself is not treated on Sundays during Lent. The focus is is elsewhere. So Wednesdays are a great opportunity to do that. Um, Or the other option that's maybe both a little bit more uh, historic, but then also um, coming back, I think a, a little bit more in recent years, is using those Wednesdays as an opportunity for catechetical preaching. So picking out uh, maybe a section of the, the small catechism and going through those truths on the, on the uh, second through sixth Wednesdays during the season of Lent. But going back to the, the question, then, that first Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, the, the focus is significantly different. It has its own uh, set of assigned readings that really all revolve around the theme of repentance. So as you mentioned, the, the ashes... Uh, are a reminder to, to all of us that one day, just as we were formed from dust, we will return to dust. And so the importance of, of repentance now, because death is surely waiting for us later, is really the focus of, of Ash Wednesday.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's helpful. Joel, let me go to you. You can set the stage for our discussion. So the first reading is from Second Samuel, uh, Nathan rebuking David. The second reading is from 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's urging that we be reconciled to God through Christ, but we're going to focus in on Luke 19, a well-known parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. What do you hope is going to be the big takeaway that your members carry home with them after hearing your sermon on this text?
2: So you have that parable, and and obviously one of the things that you look for is just points of emphasis, or as I sometimes say, the, the end stress. And you have the line of, you know, kind of a big reversal where Jesus says that the, the one man, the one you wouldn't expect, goes home justified. And so I, I thought that's just an, a neat thought to leave people with, that when they go home, they, they do so with their confidence for salvation in its proper place. Um, the text, I, you have it in, in um, Nathan's parable, if you will, and then you also have it with Jesus' parable. It, it has us looking at ourselves really honestly, Um, that the the finger comes pointing back to you that you are the one who needs Jesus and you only find salvation um, at the expense of his mercy.
1: Excellent. Sorry, I think uh, that's an interesting question. It's one that uh, we as preachers think about a lot. It's one that people ask a lot. What what am I going to take away from this service or this sermon? Um, And it's interesting to ask that question with this text, because um, it's, it's very specifically mentioned at the end. I mean, these, these are two guys who actually went to church and one of them takes something home with him. He takes home his justification with him. So it's, um, and I think that's the perfect answer. If, if nothing else that each and every week when God's people come to church, um, you know, when we ask that question, we, we might have all kinds of other things that could pop into our heads and, and a lot of them could be very valuable and noble things for us to want to take away from church. But what this guy uh, in this parable actually takes away is the one thing we never want to leave church without uh, having in our hands.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic
1: point. So Tom, guys
0: have done their text study. Do you have any initial thoughts either about something in the text or, or more broadly, like about about parables?
3: Sure. And you guys kind of set up set me up on the tea ball tea with the last comments you guys made, so thank you. Um, the, the Greek here in, in the text, one of the neat aspects of the Greek is that the same word hutus that the Pharisee uses very degradingly, I don't know if that's a word, it uses to point his finger in mockery at the tax collector is the exact same term that Jesus uses to talk about the tax collector at the end to say That one went home as a justified one. And it's interesting that he talks about how he went home because there's no reason for that to be in the text. And yet what a beautiful little nugget of God's grace that when you stand before God is right, you get to go into your home and every part of your life knowing that you are right with your God and okay. Uh, both Joel and, and John focused in on the end stress point, and that is a key issue in regards to understanding parables. Um, oftentimes the most important point that Jesus is trying to make with a parable will come at the very end. And so here, his thought about that, uh, that one went home justified, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Um, those are key thoughts to, uh, to, to take home with us, to be able to say to our members, you come here with baggage. You come here with loads of sin and guilt, but God is taking it away. And over the course of this Lenten season, you're going to see it over and over again. And so you get to go to your home exalted because God has exalted you. Really, really cool. A couple other keys in understanding parables is uh, first of all to focus in on the discourse. And it's interesting when you look at the direct discourse that's in this parable. Uh, what the pharisee says is much longer than what the tax collector says and just the length of what they say is a is a wonderful contrast that the pharisee comes in loaded with pride look at me lord how thankful you should be that i'm here and the fair the tax collector, by contrast is just so humble have mercy on me a sinner And uh, beautiful in the way that that direct discourse, looking at the direct discourse helps us really see the contrast in the parables so clearly. And then finally, um, in regards to understanding parables, look for the surprises. And here probably the biggest surprise is again coming at the end. The tax collector goes home as a righteous one in the ears of a first century Judean audience. That would have been crazy. Tax collectors, um, at least at some times, weren't even allowed to be on juries because they were considered to be such a thieving, lying bunch. And so for a tax collector to walk home as a right one would have just blown the minds of the people at that time, particularly in the contrast to the Pharisee, the good guy, (laughs) he goes home not right which again would have been just the opposite of what uh, the, the first hearers of this would have expected. So I think just understanding those three things, the importance of direct discourse, the importance of end stress and looking for the surprises, it's helpful in every parable. I think it, all three are particularly helpful with this one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. John Bowler, I'm gonna go back to you. Uh, guys are gonna get ready to start writing. So got any initial thoughts on how you might handle this text?
1: Yeah, I just a, a couple of things that are even connected to what Tom was saying um, it's interesting I, I, I always kind of take special note whenever there's a section in a particular gospel that isn't in any of the other gospels I, I just really always enjoy uh, preaching on those sections and Luke has a lot of uh, unique material especially in the second half of his of his gospel um, and what Luke often does, you know, having, having worked through the entire year of year C, where the emphasis um, and the, the predominant gospel that's read from is, is the gospel of Luke, Luke often uh, reduces either a story or a parable to just a, a simple, clear statement at the very end of it. Um, and very often it's stated in terms of a reversal of expectations. So, you know, in a lot of ways, he's, he's setting the theme for the entire book already back in chapter one, with the Magnificat where toward the end of that, it's, it's just so much about a, a reversal of the normal order of things. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones, but has lifted up the lowly. And here at the end of this parable, you, you get another uh, example of, of a, a statement that says pretty much the same thing. Uh, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So Luke is is really uh, unique and, and for me, enjoyable in that way that um, he, he, he spells out at the end of the parable what what it's really all about. I think the other thing that's interesting about this text, um, and we're, we're kind of grabbing it out of its normal order of things, we'd normally be looking at these uh, readings toward the end of the gospel in the post-Pentecost season. Here we're, we're pulling this one up to Ash Wednesday because of its stress on repentance. But if you look at co- what comes right before it, uh, Jesus tells a parable about an unjust judge, and so judgment and and justice are in the context, and then Jesus concludes by asking this haunting question, when the Son of Man returns, uh, namely as judge, so when I come back to earth to judge, will he find faith on the earth, and and he just leaves it at that, Um, and so to have this parable immediately following that question, which really gives an answer of what the faith the Son of Man is looking for looks like, that the surprising nature of it, that the exact opposite guy that we'd expect uh, to be justified is the one who goes home justified, just really is set up by that that question that comes right before it. This is what true, humble, repentant Christian faith looks like. It's not, it's maybe not what you'd expect. It's its not the religious looking guy, but the other one.
2: I think you really have an opportunity to, to preach um, specific law in a unique way um, that you can almost have your finger pointing out at, at other people and then see it come back, back to you where you almost want to say, oh, God needs to have mercy on those sinners. But it's no God need, needs to have mercy on me, the sinner. Um, can I give a quick story? So about a year ago, I was preaching for a wedding out of town and it was a Saturday night. So I got a substitute. And on the way back, I, I don't get to do this much in my setting. I timed it out so that I could go to church twice at other Wells churches. So I was going to stop at one place drive another hour, stop at another one. And of course, I drank too much coffee and and my plan, I had to stop for a potty break in between. And it just so happened, it was the one exit um, on the Florida highways where there's a gas station right across from a strip club. So this is Sunday morning. And I happen to look over and I see this gentleman's club and there's cars there. And I'm wearing a shirt and tie going to church twice. And so I thought, look at me going to church twice. And I see these people walking into the gentleman's club. And of course, you know what I thought, what's wrong with those people? And and you can see how, I mean, this is why Jesus told the parable um, for those who would look down upon others and and I can start to climb up in my own self-righteousness. And he pulls us way back down and convicts us and then raises us with the exaltation, exalts us with his forgiveness.
1: I, I've never had quite the same experience, but uh, at least in terms of the, the strip club detail of it, but I'm, I'm kind of exactly the same way that it's not when I'm at church that I'm tempted to think, oh, look at how great I am. But when I, when I go to Quick Trip or when I go to the grocery store on my way home from church and I walk in with my Sunday best and I see you know everyone else is kind of just getting out of bed and they've got their sweats on yet, boy, it just instantly pops into your head uh, to have, have those feelings of self-righteousness.
3: Yeah, if I can oh. pop, pop in on it, one of the questions that people have in regards to this parable is the question of, was the Pharisee proud or was the Pharisee sincere? Um, some people will actually point back to Deuteronomy 26, where God talks to the people and says, when you do these things, come to your God and say, I brought these sacrifices. I've not done these things. I have done these things, as you have said. Um, was he sincerely trying to keep the law? Um, no matter which way you go, whether you think the, the, the Pharisee was being sincere, or whether you think he was just being puffed up, you get to the same place. You get to the same place of understanding he does not understand the, the law of God at all. That uh, the holiness of God is there not to, for us to measure ourselves up against, but to crush us. And when it's to say, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee just plain couldn't get that. And so often I just don't get that, and how often I need that reminder that, man, I need God's mercy over and over and over again.
1: I, I think one thing that's always struck me about this parable in, in connection with that um, is that there, as much as a person might try and convince themselves otherwise, the, the awareness that we haven't lived up to God's perfect standards is really tough to get rid of. And the way that that manifests itself is that if we present our holiness to God, it's never an absolute thing. It's always a relative thing. So I'm good in comparison to that guy over there, which is exactly, of course, what the, what the Pharisee does. So as, as proud as he appears to be, um, he still has to rely on the crutch of having uh, this tax collector at church at the same time on the same day to be able to demonstrate just how good he is that in with something you you
0: talked about before, John, and I don't know that this is necessarily malady, but a possible application of this. So many people they'll like, just okay, I do a lot of church consults and we'll do survey work and they'll say, I wish the sermons were more practical. And I think what they mean by that is like you, that they'd be given like this checklist of things to do, you know, during, which there. so there's assumption there that they've kind of made it to a certain point. Now they want to get to the next level Rather than realize, okay, yeah, relatively compared, you know, compared to the rest of the world, yes, you've maybe made it to a certain level of righteousness, but you're still not righteous in God's eyes. And so what you said before, if you can just go home with that righteousness, that that's the most practical <laughs> uh, task for a Sunday at all, is that someone would go home confident in Christ and therefore righteous in God's eyes.
3: Yeah, if I could just comment on that, I agree with your thought completely, John, and I think that's maybe why. In the, the very last verse of the, the parable that, that Jesus talks about, how that one went down to his house as a justified one. Um, what was the most practical thing that the tax collector needed? He needed to know that he was right with God. Because if he knew that he was right with God, everything else in life is going to be somehow, some way, all right. And uh, same thing for us as, uh, as believers in Jesus and for every one of our members, the most important thing that they can take home with them is the fact that they're right with God because that will flow into every aspect of their life.
2: Joel? Cool. Uh, John, Bauer had me kind of thinking about this before when you look at the context. is so if you keep reading with, with what Tom said in mind, you get to you know, Luke 19 and here's a, a tax collector who goes home with Jesus. And watch how everything kind of falls into place in his life once he knows that he's forgiven and so there's a a, a real tangible practical example
0: yeah so okay we i think we have kind of touched on malady let's, let's go to to gospel because i think a, a potential danger in this is you can preach a gospel that's no gospel at all which is okay now just you know beat your breast enough and call for mercy so it's still putting the focus on on you which isn't how do you guys see approaching specific gospel in this text?
3: Can, can I bounce in with one more law thought first? Oh,
0: sure. Go ahead. Sorry, Tom.
3: <laughs> Sorry. Not to, uh, not to keep pounding the law because the gospel's the fun part, but, um, or the funner part. But I, I think there's also the opposite, that we fail to recognize the enormity of God's forgiving love. You know, that this guy who's a tax collector who's considered to be the the refuse of the world at that time walks home as one who is right in the eyes of God. Wow. And that I get to look at myself and say, um, God, because of what Jesus has done will look at me as being right in the eyes of God. But how often don't I just fail to understand that often? don't I just fail to appreciate the enormity of that. What an incredible gift of God that is. I, I think there's a, there's an aspect of our law preaching that could possibly Uh, address that matter um, particularly for those of us who can get kind of (laughs) self-righteous to realize to be reminded of the enormity of God's forgiving love is a valuable thing
0: what you said ties in though with the question that I asked you talked about the enormity of what Jesus has done and this text doesn't mention that it mentions what what the tax collector did and it mentions you know what the Pharisee did and yet Jesus says, okay, he is justified. After what he just did and said, he beat his breast and he said this, he is justified. And just how do people understand that correctly? I think that's probably the key to um, a, a proper specific gospel for this text.
3: It's okay if I bounce in again right away? Go ahead. Sorry, guys, I'll shut up in, in a minute after that. It, it's interesting, the, the words that the, that the task collector uses. Oh, God, um, be merciful to me, the sinner. Um, Joel referenced referenced this earlier. He doesn't refer to himself as a sinner. He refers to himself as the sinner. Secondly, the have mercy on me can also be a word about sacrifice. It can mean, God, be propitiated to me. Be reconciled to me. And some think that there's a hint in there to say that these are prayers that were being offered at the time of sacrifice. And that what the the tax collector is focusing in on is there's a sacrifice going on and I need that sacrifice. And oh God, use that sacrifice to bring me the mercy that I need. Um, And of course, Ash Wednesday and the lead on into Lent sets itself up perfectly for that because look at the sacrifice which is coming. The most incredible sacrifice that the world has ever or will ever see has been made for you. And for me, that is absolutely amazing. And so you hear a little uh, nuance of that or a shadow of it, uh, or maybe a little oblique reference to it in the words that the uh that the tax collector says, mercy on the Lord.
2: That's I also cool. saw the um, you know, the wisdom of having Second Corinthians five as as one of the other readings then. So if you want to pick up on that word, God have mercy on me, the sinner, well then you have that verse five twenty-one of no, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So Jesus is charged and is paying the penalty as the sinner, um, and as a result, we have God's righteousness. We go home because of that sacrifice that was that was made.
1: Yeah, I, I think both of those uh, readings work hand in hand, as, as Tom mentioned with that word. Um, that isn't just the you know the the curie alaison version of have mercy. You know, feel bad for me, uh, feel sorry for me. It's it's the recognition that some sort of payment needs to be made, and and at the very least, aside from the the time of day he may have been there, he's at the temple where those sacrifices are offered. Um, and then with and and tying it in then with First Corinthians, or uh, Second Corinthians five, the the reading itself picks up with kind of the we might say the call to repentance, uh, we are Christ's ambassadors. We implore you be reconciled to God. But what comes right before that is God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So in in both cases, it's God who's taking the first action and our repentance is not something that convinces God uh, to do what needs to be done. It's a response to God, God doing that on his own initiative because of his grace. Other thoughts about,
0: points you might want to bring out
3: in the sermon Tom um an interesting little tidbit from the the Pharisees prayer there's there's at least five uses of the word I um I thank you that I am not like other men I give I do this I do that and uh and the the how easy it is for us to become self-centered and self-focused and me, me, look at me, 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 and where does that end up leaving me? It leaves me in slavery. And by contrast, um, the the focus of the tax collector's prayer is just on God. God have mercy on me, and uh, and his focus is totally outward. And where does that leave him? It leaves him standing as right with God. And so, uh, a reminder for our for our people to feel free to despair of your own righteousness because it is despairable, but look outside yourself. Look outside yourself to the God who loves you dearly, because there is your righteousness, and your God loves you dearly, and you can see it in the sacrifice that he made for you.
1: I think that that connects really well, too, with what Tom mentioned before about parables and paying attention to the direct discourse. Um, If if we needed to convince God of our, our righteousness, then all the words in the world wouldn't be enough. Certainly not even, even the many words that the Pharisee spoke. Um, if we needed to convince God of the genuineness of our repentance, again, the, the same would be true. But the fact that it's not our repentance that somehow earns God's love, his mercy, or his forgiveness is, I think, enforced and highlighted by the fact that the, the tax collectors' words are so few. Other thoughts?
0: I always wondered whenever, you know, we'll, talk, we'll tell pastors to avoid um, unnecessarily using churchy words in a sermon, which to me always meant if, if the churchy word comes up, that's like you have, and I almost wonder if you have to spend some time just letting people know what justified justified means, um, just because it's, it's, it's,
2: the text hinges on that right now. I think to that, um, you have, I mean, the self-declaration of the Pharisee. So he's declaring, I think John Bauer said earlier, a very subjective way. This is what I think of myself versus the declaration of God on the basis of Christ's you know, work. Is It's an objective declaration. This is, this is true because of what he's done, not because of anything I've done. And I think that's a neat contrast again. The parable has some great contrasts. Our own declarations of ourselves, whether it's God can never forgive me, or you know I'm really great. Well, He brings us down through His law, through, and then raises us up through His gospel.
3: And I think it's really valuable to go back to the the, the courtroom scene. It's perhaps a little overly simplistic, but that the, the the judge is talking, and the judge makes a declaration about the defendant. The judge says, "You're innocent," and whether you were guilty or innocent, it doesn't matter because the judge has spoken. And that the, the, the judge of all declares that I am innocent on the basis of what Jesus did for me, it's really, really cool. So I, I would agree with your assessment, uh, John, that this is something that we probably need to do a good job of explaining and making clear.
1: I think if if there's ever a sermon um, to to not avoid the churchy word, but to use it as an opportunity to teach the concept, this would be it. Um I read this somewhere along the line, someone can correct me if they, if they know immediately that I'm wrong, but this is actually the only time that out of Jesus' mouth we, we get a justification-related uh, word. So that, that concept that we are uh, so familiar with from the writings of Paul and from the, the language that is used in the Lutheran confessions was really only on the lips of Jesus this one time. And if you, if you uh, consider that also then in in this context of the parable about the judge that came before it, and Jesus says, when I come back to judge, will I find faith? Well, this is the judge telling us exactly what that justifying faith looks like.
0: Yeah, not that, not that you'd want to get into, to all the Greek in the sermon, but just you guys brought it up early, the unique, the unique word for for mercy propitiation so you're justified because the payment has been has been made not just because i've just wink wink let's pretend that nothing ever happened other thoughts you guys have any thought either, whether it's sermon introduction or illustrations or theme any thoughts or too early in the process for for that yet
1: I think the, the, the thing that sticks out in my head as I, I think about preaching this text on, in the context of Ash Wednesday. Um, you know, Tom said it before. In the Pharisee, we sure see a guy who, who seems to be puffed up. And if, if you were to actually almost visualize that, you know, you can even see his chest swelling as he uh, thinks about how, how great he is, his head, you know, yeah, ego uh, through the roof and, and just all puffed up. And as we gather in church on Ash Wednesday, and if, if you uh, go to a church or, or preach at a church where there is our, our actual visible ashes on display, where um, those ashes are just like a, sh- a sharp needle that, that bursts that balloon or bursts our overinflated ego, uh, how can any of us be uh, too high on ourselves when we know that one day we're going to be pushing up daisies or we're going to be warm food or however you want to put it? Um, the ashes themselves are, are just such a pointed reminder of that, um, and so yeah, just the, the the necessity of having that that bubble burst now in our hearts through repentance, um, knowing that knowing that eventually death is in store for us.
3: Tom? yeah, if I could just comment on that real briefly about the the. Um imposition of the ashes I will admit I was not a big fan of the idea <laughs> um, when it first started happening in our in our church body and I, I kind of came to it kicking and screaming because one of my members said I would really really like to do this I'm kind of oh, man. all right let's try it once and if we hate it we can and I loved it um, there, there was something about you know, as you impose the ashes on the forehead. Of, a, of an elderly person, dust you are, to dust you will return. That's probably on their minds. And then you do it on the forehead of an infant, dust you are, to dust you will return. And you do it on the forehead of your wife or your children, dust you are, to dust you will return. And then somebody does it for you and says, dust you are, to dust you will return. It is a wonderful, wonderful, um, first of all, law is a mirror, reminding me of who I am on my own but oh the grace of God that Jesus was willing to become dust and ashes so that I can someday have glory and I don't remain dust and ashes but I will see Jesus with my own eyes so so cool so pastor if if you are not in the habit of doing uh, the imposition of the ashes uh, may I just humbly suggest that you consider it I've I found it to be a uh a really neat faith building or faith helping exercise that uh, that really helped me and I think my members in our in our lives of faith.
1: Yeah I, I usually mention at some point um, if I bring it up in the sermon or, or if it's just uh, in the explanation, um, sometimes I just come out and say this this will probably feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable and awkward and I, I think that's a good thing. I think that's exactly how it's supposed to be because death is, is not supposed to be this natural, easy thing that we as humans think about, which is why, of course, we, we avoid thinking about it and talking about it at all costs. Um, and then secondly, I, it, it's just, for me, it's always a wonderful service too to remember the, the blessings of baptism, how because we've been buried in, in repentance, we've been buried through faith with, with Jesus and raised to new life, then this physical death is not the end of our story. And uh, it's actually a, a custom that we have here, and I I put a plug out uh, for anyone else to do it, too. to uh, sing at the close of the Ash Wednesday service, we sing selected verses of God's own child, I gladly say it. So it's either verse four or five that says, though I lie in dust and ashes, faith's assurance brightly flashes, baptism has the strength divine to make life immortal mine. So just a a really nice connection there that reminds us, this is where we're headed, but this is not our ultimate destination. But just,
0: you know, listen to what you guys have talked about in the last five, 10 minutes. I mean, just the unique emphasis of Ash Wednesday, it just, it just illustrates, this is what you need out of church. Um, This is what church gives you. If it's, if it's, if it's approached correctly, you don't need therapy from your church. Not that God's word isn't therapeutic. It absolutely is. But, but this is this focus of what your real problem is, which is um, the appending death and the judgment that would be behind it were it not for christ baptism everything you mentioned that's yeah it'd be a, be a great day
2: joel actually just pulling those two thoughts together is what i scribbled on, on my piece of paper earlier of there's who i am on my own apart from christ and and then there's who i am in christ and so tom was talking about apart from christ yeah i'm <laughs> nothing but dust and ashes and then john talked about with baptism who am i well i've life immortals mine uh, through christ And those are kind of, I mean, that's the direction. I think as you preach it, you can tell it in story form because it is a story. And then just really stress that at the end. um, Bring us into the story, of course, too. That's what I'm going to try to do. Whether or not I accomplish that will be another story.
3: If you accomplish it, you'll feel good about yourself,
1: right?
2: No. (laughs) (laughs) Just
1: one other quick thought I had It. To me repentance is is always uh has always been one of the more difficult biblical concepts to talk about like to try and describe and, and define um it seems you can either do it in a very quick and overly simplistic way um or it takes forever to try and get to the bottom of it and so i think this text is really helpful in that we, we hear who jesus audience is um we hear what their need is they they need to repent. But Jesus doesn't address that need by talking to them about repentance. He tells them a, a story. He shows them a picture of it. And so I think in our in our sermons, that's important to remember. It'd be really easy to just get deep into the weeds. Okay, here's what repentance is. Here's what it looks like. Here's how we define it. Here's the theological category that it belongs to. Um, I think a much more effective sermon is one that just helps people um, realize that that they can very easily be exactly like this first guy that Jesus pictured, and then and then help them see um, that that Jesus wants them to be like this second guy, who's, who's pictured, and the blessings that you go home with as a result.
0: Excellent. Anybody else, got any final thoughts? Seeing none, I'll just thank you. I think this sets up for a fantastic Ash Wednesday. It ties in so well with the rest of the Crushed series. Um, So looking forward to talking to you real soon about the first Sunday in Lent. Thank you, brothers. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you.